Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Chapter 18. On the Stairs. Excited, tremulous, filled with wonder at this unlooked-for event, I paused for a moment to collect my scattered senses, when the sound of a low, monotonous voice breaking upon my ear from the direction of the library, I approached and found Mr. Harwell reading aloud from his late employer's manuscript. It would be difficult for me to describe the effect which the simple discovery made upon me at this time. There, in that room of late death, withdrawn from the turmoil of the world, a hermit in his skeleton-lined cell, this man employed himself in reading and rereading, with passive interest, the words of the dead, while above and below human beings agonized in doubt and shame. Listening, I heard these words. By these means their native rulers will not only lose their jealous terror of our institutions, but acquire an actual curiosity in regard to them. Opening the door, I went in. "'Ah, you are late, sir,' was the greeting with which he rose and brought forward a chair. My reply was probably inaudible, for he added as he passed to his own seat, "'I am afraid you are not well.' I roused myself. "'I am not ill.' and pulling the papers towards me, I began looking them over. But the words danced before my eyes, and I was obliged to give up all attempt at work for that night. I fear I am unable to assist you this evening, Mr. Harwell. The fact is, I find it difficult to give proper attention to this business, while the man, who by a dastardly assassination has made it necessary, goes unpunished. The secretary, in his turn, pushed the papers aside, as if moved by a sudden distaste of them, but gave me no answer. You told me, when you first came to me with news of this fearful tragedy, that it was a mystery. But it is one which must be solved, Mr. Harwell. It is wearing out the lives of too many whom we love and respect. The secretary gave me a look. Miss Eleanor, he murmured. And Miss Mary, I went on, myself, you, and many others. "'You have manifested much interest in the matter from the beginning,' he said, "'methodically dipping his pen into the ink. "'I stared at him in amazement. "'And you,' said I, "'do you take no interest in that which involves not only the safety, "'but the happiness and honour of the family in which you have dwelt so long?' "'He looked at me with increased coldness. "'I have no wish to discuss this subject. "'I believe I have before prayed you to spare me its introduction,' "'and he arose.' "'But I cannot consider your wishes in this regard,' I persisted. "'If you know any facts connected with this affair "'which have not yet been made public, "'it is manifestly your duty to state them. "'The position which Miss Eleanor occupies at this time "'is one which should arouse the sense of justice "'in every true beast, and if you... "'If I knew anything which would serve to release her "'from her unhappy position, Mr. Raymond, "'I should have spoken long ago.' 
I bit my lip, weary of these continual bafflings, and rose also. "'If you have nothing more to say,' he went on, "'and feel utterly disinclined to work, "'why, I should be glad to excuse myself, "'as I have an engagement out. "'Do not let me keep you,' I said bitterly. "'I can take care of myself.' "'He turned upon me with a short stare, "'as if this display of feeling "'was well-nigh incomprehensible to him, "'and then, with a quiet, "'almost compassionate bow, "'left the room. "'I heard him go upstairs, "'felt the jar when his room door closed,' "'and sat down to enjoy my solitude. "'But solitude in that room was unbearable. "'By the time Mr. Harwell again descended, "'I felt I could remain no longer, "'and stepping into the hall told him "'that if he had no objection, "'I would accompany him for a short stroll. "'He bowed a stiff assent "'and hastened before me down the stairs. "'By the time I had closed the library door, "'he was halfway to the foot, "'and I was just remarking to myself upon the impliability of his figure and the awkwardness of his carriage, as seen from my present standpoint, when suddenly I saw him stop, clutch the banister at his side, and hang there with a startled, deathly expression upon his half-turned countenance, which fixed me for an instant where I was in breathless astonishment, and then caused me to rush down to his side, catch him by the arm, and cry, "'What is it? What is the matter?' but, thrusting out his hand, he pushed me upwards. "'Go back,' he whispered, in a voice shaking with intensest emotion. "'Go back.' And catching me by the arm, he literally pulled me up the stairs. Arrived at the top, he loosened his grasp, and leaning, quivering from head to foot over the banisters, glared below. "'Who is that?' he cried. "'Who is that man? What is his name?' Startled in my turn, I bent beside him and saw Henry Clavering come out of the reception room and cross the hall. "'That is Mr. Clavering,' I whispered, with all the self-possession I could muster. "'Do you know him?' Mr. Harwell fell back against the opposite wall. "'Clavering! Clavering!' he murmured with quaking lips. Then suddenly, bounding forward, clutched the railing before him and fixing me with his eyes, from which all the stoic calmness had gone down forever in flame and frenzy, gurgled into my ear, "'You want to know who the assassin of Mr. Leavenworth is, do you? Look there, then. That is the man. Clavering.' And with a leap he bounded from my side, and swaying like a drunken man, disappeared from my gaze in the hall above. My first impulse was to follow him. Rushing upstairs, I knocked at the door of his room, but no response came to my summons. I then called his name in the hall, but without avail. He was determined not to show himself. Resolved that he should not thus escape me, I returned to the library and wrote him a short note, in which I asked for an explanation of his tremendous accusation, saying I would be in my rooms the next evening at six, when I should expect to see him. This done, I descended to rejoin Mary." But the evening was destined to be full of disappointments. She had retired to her room while I was in the library, and I lost the interview from which I expected so much. The woman is slippery as an eel, I inwardly commented, pacing the hall in my chagrin. Wrapped in mystery, she expects me to feel for her the respect due to one of frank and open nature. I was about to leave the house when I saw Thomas descending the stairs with a letter in his hand. 
Miss Leavenworth's compliments, sir, and she is too fatigued to remain below this evening. I moved aside to read the note he'd handed me, feeling a little conscience-stricken as I traced the hurried, trembling handwriting through the following words. You ask more than I can give. Matters must be received as they are, without explanation from me. It is the grief of my life to deny you, but I have no choice. God forgive us all, and keep us from despair. M. And below. As we cannot meet now without embarrassment, it is better we should bear our burdens in silence and apart. Mr. Harwell will visit you. Farewell. As I was crossing 32nd Street, I heard a quick footstep behind me, and turning, saw Thomas at my side. "'Excuse me, sir,' said he, "'but I have something a little particular to say to you. "'When you asked me the other night "'what sort of a person the gentleman was "'who called on Miss Eleanor the evening of the murder, "'I didn't answer you as I should. "'The fact is the detectives had been talking to me "'about that very thing, and I felt shy. "'But, sir, I know you are a friend of the family, "'and I want to tell you now that that same gentleman, "'whoever he was,' Mr. Robbins, he called himself then, was at the house again tonight, sir, and the name he gave me this time to carry to Miss Leavenworth was Clavering. Yes, sir, he went on, seeing me start, and as I told Molly, he acts queer for a stranger. When he came the other night, he hesitated a long time before asking for Miss Eleanor, and when I wanted his name, took out a card and wrote on it the one I told you of, sir, with a look on his face a little peculiar for a caller. "'Besides, well?' "'Mr. Raymond,' the butler went on, "'in a low, excited voice, "'edging up very closely to me in the darkness. "'There is something I have never told any living being "'but Molly, sir, "'which may be of use to those as wishes "'to find out who committed this murder.' "'A fact or a suspicion?' I inquired. "'A fact, sir, "'which I beg your pardon for troubling you with at this time. "'But Molly will give me no rest,' "'unless I speak of it to you or Mr. Grice, "'her feelings being so worked up on Hannah's account, "'whom we all know is innocent, "'though folks do dare to say as how she must be guilty, "'just because she is not to be found the minute they want her. "'But this fact,' I urged, "'well, the fact is this. "'You see, I would tell Mr. Grice,' he resumed, "'unconscious of my anxiety, "'but I have my fears of detectives, sir, "'that catch you up so quick at times, "'and seem to think you know so much more than you really do.' "'But this fact,' I again broke in. "'Oh, yes, sir. "'The fact is that that night, "'the one of the murder, you know, "'I saw Mr. Clavering, "'Robbins or whatever his name is, "'enter the house. "'But neither I nor anyone else "'saw him go out of it, "'nor do I know that he did. "'What do you mean?' "'Well, sir, what I mean is this. "'When I came down from Miss Eleanor "'and told Mr. Robbins,' as he called himself at that time, that my mistress was ill and unable to see him, the word she gave me, sir, to deliver. Mr. Robbins, instead of bowing and leaving the house like a gentleman, stepped into the reception room and sat down. He may have felt sick. He looked pale enough. At any rate, he asked me for a glass of water. Not knowing any reason, then, for suspicionating anyone's actions, I immediately went down in the kitchen for it, leaving him there in the reception room alone, but before I could get it, I heard the front door close. "'What's that?' said Molly, who was helping me, sir. "'I don't know,' said I. 
unless it's the gentleman has got tired of waiting and gone. If he's gone, he won't want the water, she said. So down I set the pitcher, and upstairs I come, and sure enough he was gone, or so I thought then. But who knows, sir, if he was not in that room or the drawing-room, which was dark that night, all the time I was a shutting up of the house. I made no reply to this. I was more startled than I cared to reveal. You see, sir, I wouldn't speak of such a thing about any person that comes to see the young ladies, but we all know someone who was in the house that night murdered my master, and, as it was not, Hannah. You say that Miss Eleanor refused to see him, I interrupted, in the hope that the simple suggestion would be enough to elicitate further details of his interview with Eleanor. Yes, sir. When she first looked at the card, she showed a little hesitation. But in a moment, she grew very flushed in the face and bade me say what I told you. I should never have thought of it again if I had not seen him come blazoning and bold into the house this evening with a new name on his tongue. Indeed, and I do not like to think any evil of him now, but Molly would have it I should speak to you, sir, and ease my mind, and that is all, sir. When I arrived home that night, I entered into my memorandum book a new list of suspicious circumstances, but this time they were under the caption C instead of E. Chapter 19. In My Office The next day, as, with nerves unstrung and an exhausted brain, I entered my office, I was greeted by the announcement, A gentleman, sir, in your private room, been waiting some time, very impatient. Weary, in no mood to hold consultation with clients new or old, I advanced with anything but an eager step towards my room, when, upon opening the door, I saw... Mr. Clavering. Too much astounded for the moment to speak, I bowed to him silently, whereupon he approached me with the air and dignity of a highly bred gentleman, and presented his card, on which I saw written, in free and handsome characters, his whole name, Henry Ritchie Clavering. After this introduction of himself, he apologized for making so unceremonious a call, saying in excuse that he was a stranger in town that his business was one of great urgency, that he'd casually heard honorable mention of me as a lawyer and a gentleman, and so had ventured to seek this interview on behalf of a friend who was so unfortunately situated as to require the opinion and advice of a lawyer upon a question which not only involved an extraordinary state of facts, but was of a nature embarrassing to him, owing to his ignorance of American laws and the legal bearing of these facts upon the same. Having thus secured my attention and awakened my curiosity, he asked me if I would permit him to relate his story. Recovering in a measure from my astonishment and subduing the extreme repulsion, almost horror, I felt for the man, I signified my assent, at which he drew from his pocket a memorandum book from which he read in substance as follows. An Englishman traveling in this country meets at a fashionable watering place an American girl with whom he falls deeply in love and whom, after a few days, he desires to marry. Knowing his position to be good, his fortune ample, and his intentions highly honorable, he offers her his hand and is accepted. But a decided opposition arising in the family to the match, he is compelled to disguise his sentiments, though the engagement remained unbroken. While matters were in this uncertain condition, 
he received advices from England demanding his instant return, and alarmed at the prospect of a protracted absence from the object of his affections, he writes to the lady informing her of the circumstances and proposing a secret marriage. She consents with stipulations, the first of which is that he should leave her instantly upon the conclusion of the ceremony, and the second that he should entrust the public declaration of the marriage to her. It was not precisely what he wished, but anything which served to make her his own was acceptable at such a crisis. He readily enters into the plans proposed. Meeting the lady at a parsonage, some twenty miles from the watering place at which she was staying, he stands up with her before a Methodist preacher, and the ceremony of marriage is performed. There are two witnesses, a hired man of the minister, called in for the purpose, and a lady friend who came with the bride. But there was no license, and the bride had not completed her twenty-first year. Now, was that marriage legal? If the lady, wedded in good faith upon that day by my friend, chooses to deny that she is his lawful wife, can he hold her to a compact entered into in so informal a manner? In short, Mr. Raymond, is my friend the lawful husband of that girl or not? While listening to the story, I found myself yielding to feelings greatly in contrast to those with which I greeted the relator but a moment before. I became so interested in his friend's case as to quite forget, for the time being, that I'd ever seen or heard of Henry Clavering, and after learning that the marriage ceremony took place in the state of New York, I replied to him, as near as I can remember, in the following words. In this state, and I believe it to be American law, marriage is a civil contract, requiring neither license, priest, ceremony, nor certificate, and in some cases, witnesses are not even necessary to give it validity. Of old, the modes of getting a wife were the same as those of requiring any other species of property, and they are not materially changed at the present time. It is enough that the man and woman say to each other, from this time we are married, or you are now my wife, or my husband, as the case may be. The mutual consent is all that is necessary. In fact, you may contract marriage as you contract to lend a sum of money or to buy the merest trifle. Then your opinion is that upon your statement your friend is the lawful husband of the lady in question, presuming, of course, that no legal disabilities of either party existed to prevent such a union. As to the young lady's age, I will merely say that any fourteen-year-old girl can be a party to a marriage contract. Mr. Clavering bowed his countenance assuming a look of great satisfaction. "'I am very glad to hear this,' said he. "'My friend's happiness is entirely involved in the establishment of his marriage.' He appeared so relieved, my curiosity was yet further aroused. I therefore said, "'I have given you my opinion as to the legality of this marriage, but it may be quite another thing to prove it, should the same be contested.' He started, cast me an inquiring look, and murmured, true. Allow me to ask you a few questions. Was the lady married under her own name? She was. The gentleman? Yes, sir. Did the lady receive a certificate? She did. Properly signed by the minister and witnesses? He bowed his head in assent. Did she keep this? I cannot say, but I presume she did. The witnesses were a hired man of the minister. Who can be found? 
who cannot be found, dead or disappeared. The minister is dead. The man has disappeared. The minister dead, three months since. And the marriage took place when? Last July. The other witness, the lady friend, where is she? She can be found, but her action is not to be depended upon. Has the gentleman himself no proofs of this marriage? Mr. Clavering shook his head. He cannot even prove he was in the town where it took place on that particular day. The marriage certificate was, however, filed with the clerk of the town, said I. It was not, sir. How was that? I cannot say. I only know that my friend has made inquiry and that no such paper is to be found. I leaned slowly back and looked at him. I do not wonder your friend is concerned in regard to his position. If what you hint is true and the lady seems disposed to deny that any such ceremony ever took place. Still, if he wishes to go to law, the court may decide in his favor, though I doubt it. His sworn word is all he would have to go upon, and if she contradicts his testimony under oath, why, the sympathy of a jury is, as a rule, with the woman. Mr. Clavering rose, looked at me with some earnestness, and finally asked in a tone which, though somewhat changed, lacked nothing of its former suavity, if I would be kind enough to give him in writing that portion of my opinion which directly bore upon the legality of the marriage, that such a paper would go far toward satisfying his friend that his case had been properly presented, as he was aware that no respectable lawyer would put his name to a legal opinion without first having carefully arrived at his conclusions by a thorough examination of the law bearing upon the facts submitted. This request seeming so reasonable, I unhesitatingly complied with it and handed him the opinion. He took it, and after reading it carefully over, deliberately copied it into his memorandum book. This done, he turned towards me, a strong, though hitherto subdued, emotion showing itself in his countenance. Now, sir, said he, rising upon me to the full height of his majestic figure, I have but one more request to make, and that is that you will receive back this opinion into your own possession, and in the day you think to lead a beautiful woman to the altar, pause and ask yourself, am I sure that the hand I clasp with such impassioned fervor is free? Have I any certainty for knowing that it has not already been given away, like that of the lady whom, in this opinion of mine, I have declared to be a wedded wife, according to the laws of my country. Mr. Clavering. But he, with an urbane bow, laid his hand upon the knob of the door. I thank you for your courtesy, Mr. Raymond, and I bid you good day. I hope you will have no need of consulting that paper before I see you again. And with another bow, he passed out. It was the most vital shock I had yet experienced, and for a moment... I stood paralyzed. Me? Me? Why should he mix me up with the affair unless... But I would not contemplate that possibility. Eleanor, married, and to this man? No, no, anything but that. And yet I found myself continually turning the supposition over in my mind until, to escape the torment of my own conjectures, I seized my hat and rushed into the street in the hope of finding him again, and extorting from him an explanation of his mysterious conduct. But by the time I reached the sidewalk, he was nowhere to be seen. A thousand busy men, with their various cares and purposes, 
had pushed themselves between us, and I was obliged to return to my office with my doubts unsolved. I think I never experienced a longer day, but it passed, and at five o'clock I had the satisfaction of inquiring for Mr. Clavering at the Hoffman House. Judge of my surprise when I learned that his visit to my office was his last action before taking passage upon the steamer leaving that day for Liverpool, that he was now on the high seas, and all chance of another interview with him was at an end. I could scarcely believe the fact at first, but after a talk with the cabman who had driven him off to my office and thence to the steamer, I became convinced. My first feeling was one of shame. I had been brought face to face with the accused man, had received an intimation from him that he was not expecting to see me again for some time, and had weakly gone on attending to my own affairs and allowed him to escape, like the simple tyro that I was. My next, the necessity of notifying Mr. Grice of this man's departure. But it was now six o'clock, the hour set apart for my interview with Mr. Harwell. I could not afford to miss that. So merely stopping to dispatch a line to Mr. Grice, in which I promised to visit him that evening, I turned my steps towards home. I found Mr. Harwell there before me. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.